On today's show, Bill from Enon Hall is back to help me answer a listener question about adding modern amenities, such as kitchens and baths, into our old houses. Also, you'll learn about Elfris Alley, the nation's oldest residential street located in Philadelphia. My guests are Ted Most, the director of the museum, and longtime residents of Elfris Alley, Sue and Rob Cattell. But first... I'm Stacy Grinsfelder from Blake Hill House, and I am the host of True Tales from Old Houses. Hello, everyone. I hope you're all doing well this week. Whenever I'm getting ready for a new episode, I think, my goodness, is it really time to do this again? The prep and the administrative duties never really end. However, Once I start recording and putting the show together, it does feel like a lot of time has passed since I've been here. I don't really know what it's like for you as a listener, but hopefully it's just enough of me. Not too little, not too much. Anyway, I want to start today with a thank you. True Tales from Old Houses received a couple of very nice reviews last week. Many thanks to The Bark Eater (laughs) and Kitty underscore J18 for your kind and thoughtful reviews. Something tells me those are not your real names. This season, I have gotten out of the habit of encouraging people to leave ratings and reviews. However, it is a pretty important facet of podcasting. Positive ratings and reviews help people find the show and tell them that True Tales from Old Houses is worth a listen. So if you have a minute and you're so inclined, it would be great if you would leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It really helps. Okay, I do have two more things to tell you. And the first is that the spring merchandise fundraising event is officially on. It started last week and it runs through Monday, June 7th. So it's the same pre-order situation just like last fall. No money changes hands right now. When you go to the True Tales from Old Houses website, you will see the merch run graphic in the sidebar. And at the top of the page, you'll also see a link to the merch run. And for good measure, I put it in the show notes of this episode too. And those links will take you where you need to go to place your pre-order. This spring, we have short sleeve and long sleeve tees, a tank top, and a hoodie, and they're all in the same super soft fabric as last time. I wasn't going to do a hoodie. I mean, it is summer or getting close to summer, but last time, my daughter was really sad she didn't get one, and I promised that I would order one for her this round. There's also a really nice work apron. Um, I wear an apron in my shop most of the time, and I thought it would be fun to offer one with the True Tales from Old Houses logo on it. So here's how the whole thing works. Between now and June 7th, you'll submit a pre-order for the items you want. On June 8th, I'll order everything from my friend Jim's small business. He printed our merchandise last time too. Now when everything is ready in a week or two after June 7th, then I'll email an invoice to you. And once that invoice is paid, your gear will ship within two business days. Last time, everything went very smoothly, and I expect that it'll go well this time, too. But if you have any questions or issues with the form, just let me know, and I'll get everything straightened out right away. The final announcement that I have is that I am participating in the One Room Challenge again, and I'll be working on the main bedroom here in Blake Hill House. So if you're unfamiliar with the challenge, it is a biannual event. It lasts for six to eight weeks. It happens to be eight weeks this round. So I've eight weeks to finish making over my main bedroom here. 
Now, the One Room Challenge started out as a decor event, and the featured designers were and still are really talented professional interior designers. I am not a professional interior designer. <laughs> it's not even my strength, to be real honest with you. But now there are 200 to 300 guest participants like me, and for our participation in the One Room Challenge, really anything goes. So it could be construction, decor, repairs, woodworking, sewing, you name it. It's technically, the whole thing is not a competition, but Better Homes and Gardens is the media partner, and they choose projects to feature on social and in their magazine. If you're interested in participating, it is not too late. You can head to oneroomchallenge.com and click on the guest registration link at the top of the page. And to follow my particular bedroom makeover, head to the blog, blakehillhouse.com, and I will put links to everything in the show notes too. As always, if you have information, events, workshops that you'd like the old house community to hear about, please send me an email via the contact page and I will happily announce it on an upcoming episode. For today's Q&A, Bill Chapman from Enon Hall is back. Hi, Bill. Hey, Stacy. Uh, you probably have a lot of insight into today's listener question, and I wondered if you're ready. <laughs> I talk okay. you up a yeah, lot. Let's hear it. <laughs> I have a lot of faith in you, Bill. Just know that. Just know that. Oh, it's, no pressure. No pressure. Yeah, not pressure. It's faith. Faith in All you. Right. All right. So the question is... Gosh, you've had to deal with this a lot, actually. How do you toe the line when renovating an old house to have modern amenities, such as a kitchen or bathrooms? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I think it comes down to your philosophy, your your approach to an old house. When we bought, when we decided we were going to move full time into this house, which is primarily early 19th century. We knew that we didn't want to take any 18th, early 19th century rooms and turn them into something that they were never intended to be. Right. So, and destroy that original fabric and, and flow and intent of the house. Uh, so, we knew that in order to move here full time, we had a modern kitchen and we were going to put it in an addition on the house. So, then the question is you know, there was no kitchen in the house. So, how do you treat it so that it fits in? And nobody is going to walk. I, I think where I I kind of land is that nobody's going to walk through an 18th century house or a 19th century house that you're living in full time and go, oh, whoa, you have a kitchen <laughs> and you have a bathroom and you wouldn't have had those in this house. So you have to give yourself a little bit of a a, a, a pass on that. And for us, us, it's always been about material choice, design choice, so that it feels uh, like it all blends. Right. So, you know, this house has stood through three centuries, so it's seen kitchens of all periods. And at one point, there would have been a 1930s or 1940s kitchen in it. But right now, walking through our house that is all... Uh, early 19th century feel, it would seem really bizarre to all of a sudden walk into a kitchen that feels 1930s. Right. So our kitchen feels 
And we believe like what a kitchen would feel like in the early 19th century if they had all the modern amenities. So natural materials, you know, a countertop, we chose soapstone, certainly honed finishes, any kind of a, so any, anything that's not a high gloss would make sense. Our cabinets are very much like a furniture design, a shaker, uh, like pieces of furniture versus contemporary cabinets. Light fixtures, you know, go a long way to to bring that feel in. Uh, we do have stainless steel appliances, but I, to me, they kind of go stainless steel kind of just goes away. It also we have some fixtures and some uh, accessories in the kitchen that are pewter, which are the period of the house, and the stainless steel kind of blends with the pewter. Right. How about you? What's the approach? You have a, a wood countertop, right? I on the I have an island, which is very not 1885s. Um, so mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so I have a kitchen island, which I adore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can come and pry that out of my cold dead hands. It's probably the my <laughs> favorite part of the whole kitchen. Um, I was going to ask you really quick though. So you do have a modern, like a fitted kitchen. You don't have an unfitted kitchen in your house. You have cabinets. You have yes. everything like that. Okay, yes. so. I I do too. And it's interesting that you mentioned no kitchen because I've recently discovered, found out through some people who have a connection to this house from other houses around, this was part of an estate, that this house that I live in, Blake Hill House, probably didn't have a kitchen. I know they had a an area to bring the food in. They had a big stove, so they probably could warm things, keep it warm. But I believe there was a separate house where the kitchen was, and all mm-hmm. of the food and everything was prepared there for the, all of the different houses on the estate. And it didn't even occur to me because I was so new in this when we redid our kitchen. We had a 40s kitchen too, which stuck out like a sore thumb. You know, mm-hmm. metal cabinets, they were all rusty. Mm-hmm. There was one light in the center and I, I, they had taken the, the brick pad where the cook, st- you know, the stove used to sit and they'd put the new modern stove, you know, a wood stove used to be on it. They put a new modern stove on it. So it was higher. You know, I'm not a tall person. So it sat up off the ground about three or four inches. And then that one light was behind and my head would eclipse it every time. So I could never see... That's the worst. Yeah, anything that I was making in this kitchen ever. Your head is constantly casting a shadow on your workplace. (laughs) That's no good. (laughs) Summer, when humidity struck, my hair was bigger, much more light. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so when we took all of that out... I realized there was no evidence of lines from cabinets. And it didn't even... Mm-hmm. cross my mind. I, I just was like, oh, you know, nothing is there. I, it didn't even cross my head. But there is a room beside it where actually the room that I'm in right now, and it's currently my office and laundry, and that would have been probably where they brought in a bunch of stuff. And then I do have an original little pantry where they would have kept some food, oh, nice. and it has cabinets. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm going on a tangent here. I'm probably taking more than my turn here. But the point is, I guess, is I feel a lot like you do. It's more about making something modern fit in and almost recede into the house rather than detracting from it. And I really felt like my 1940s kitchen took away from the beauty and that was here originally, the craftsmanship, because it was just so different. I mean, it was almost like going to a spaceship, you know, in the center of my house, <laughs> because the cabinets were just so strikingly different. And and so I have kind of what I consider an interim kitchen for me. It was the kitchen we could afford. It's much mm-hmm. better. It functions much better. 
But if I had $100,000, I would surely do it differently, which I don't have, by the way. I have all sorts of plans that I would do. But I know that a lot of people are going back to the unfitted kitchen now, which is basically, you know, tables and Mm -hmm. freestanding appliances. And I think that is a really... It it might be in line with the house. In my house, I, I feel like I just want more, a little bit more modern. But that modern, the ability to do modern things. I don't want it to look sleek by any means. It just needs to blend in. I think something that we all need to keep in mind as old house owners is that, you know, throughout the history of all of our houses, every 30 years, every generation or every new owner adapted the house to fit their life, their family, their needs. So just because we are, you know, sensitive to restoring the house and so forth doesn't mean that we can't continue. I mean, a house needs to be livable for your family, just like our house needs to be livable for our family. Right, so right. I, I don't feel guilty. I think it's just in making choices that make the kitchens and bathrooms and so forth sensitive uh, and blend in to the rest of the house. Right, for sure. And I'm pretty, my house was owned by the Bryants. I'm pretty sure Mrs. Bryant would have loved my microwave way back in 1885. (laughs) Sure, she would. All the time saved. I love that microwave. A marvel. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, as far as bathrooms go, I've never had anyone come to my house and and wish they could use the outhouse. So I'm I'm on board with flushing toilets and everything. But how many bathrooms do you think your house had when you first moved? Like, did did you have, well, no, it wouldn't have had indoor plumbing in the beginning. Right. And neither did mine. Yeah. So when we bought it, there was a, technically a full bath upstairs, but the tub is almost like a dog tub. Oh. (laughs) Very small. Uh, And then there was a half bath downstairs. We actually got rid of the half bath downstairs and, um, added a couple of new bathrooms but again made them when you walk in there they don't feel stark and brand new you know we're doing the the hex tile in showers and beadboard that is seen in other parts of the house so it, it feels familiar when you walk into the room i just shared a picture of the bathroom recently on instagram i don't i don't and it I have a sink from about the 1910s, 1920s, because mm-hmm. I didn't have a sink. There was no bathroom, mm-hmm. you know, so everybody keeps asking me, is it original? Is that an original? Or And after after addition, I'm like, well, both? I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't have a bathroom. They had, well, they probably had this washing area, but the sink itself is a later addition. But yes, it's original to the house because it was the first place it's been. You know, it didn't come from somebody right. else. Mm-hmm. Cool. What's your favorite? This is a secondary question. Nobody asked, but I'm curious. What's your favorite modern amenity that you have in your house? Wow. Um, actually, it's not too modern. It's a uh, uh, trying to think of the brand. Is it Hamilton Beach? It's a coffee grinder. Oh, it's okay. like a 1960s vintage coffee grinder with a glass top, a glass jar on the yes. top. Uh, it's the little things. It's the little pleasures. Right, right. Keeps you from having to use that mortar and pestle every morning, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Bill. It was fun to talk to you again today, and I'm I'm so glad you came back to do this Q&A. Thanks, Stacy. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Now it is your turn. All season, I've been asking you what is the weirdest or most surprising thing you ever found in your old house, and I have a couple of your answers to share today. First, Rachel found a cigar box that had been converted into a Morse code message box. (laughs) She said it came with a cheat sheet and a pencil. 
I think finding a Morse code message box would be a dream come true for my kids. Actually, you know what? I think it would be a dream come true for me, too. I'm just picturing us sending messages back and forth. It would be so fun. I also received an intriguing answer from Bethany. She writes, and I'll just quote her, In my first house, I was always searching for the forgotten treasure rumored to be in the house. Then one day I found it. It was, and I've decided to, uh, this is me, add a drum roll for effect. So here we go. It was a limited edition, collector's only, Liberace album. (laughs) I always think to ask too late, but I wonder where she found it. Do you have an answer to this season's question? If so, visit True Tales from Old Houses and submit your answer by voicemail or email. For a voicemail, click on the mic icon in the bottom right-hand corner. You'll see it on your phone or your computer. Just please answer in a complete sentence. If you want to send an email instead, tap contact in the top menu bar. Your privacy is important, and I will not share your messages without your permission. Thank you, Rachel and Bethany, for taking the time to answer the question about the weirdest or most surprising thing you ever found in your old house. My guests today represent Elfrith's Alley, which is, as I mentioned before, the oldest residential street in the United States. It was founded around 1702, and it's located in Philadelphia. Ted Most is the director of the Elfrith's Alley Museum, and Sue and Rob Cattell have lived on the street in one of the original houses for over 40 years. My name is Ted Most, and I am the director of the Elfrith's Alley Museum, uh, a small museum on Elfrith's Alley, one of Philadelphia's most historic streets. I'm Rob Cattell. Um, I live on the alley and have lived here for 40 years. We have to live right across from the Elfer Alley Museum. I'm, I'm Sue Cattell. Rob is my husband. We've lived here for, I think it was 46 years, Rob. We raised two uh, women here who are now in their 30s and uh, love it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, This is a little bigger group than I usually talk to, and I'm thrilled to have Ted as a a director of the museum and then actual residents from Alfred's Alley here on the show. So thank you very much. All right, Ted, I'm going to start with you. It's my understanding that the building in Elfrith's Alley began in 1703 in response to overcrowding. And I would like you to start by giving us a broader view of its origins. Sure. So um, the most of the alley itself, uh, the street, was created in 1703 as a way to get basically into the middle of the block because... While these these lots were laid out for big homes with big lawns, both industrial buildings and homes were being built in the middles of the lots. And so around 1703, a man who ran a a flower-making operation, he was a bolter, created a little alley on the the edge of his property. By 1713, so 10 years later, um, at least one house was located on that little alleyway. Uh, And then beginning in the 1720s, that alleyway became actually more formalized. So that alleyway was 10 feet wide, uh, five feet of the adjoining property was tacked onto it. So it became a 15 foot wide alley, which is what it is today. And the first two of the houses that are currently standing were built uh, around 1724. And then from there, it was sort of 
uh, lot by lot as as these lots got sub- subdivided and, and the gaps between them were filled. Uh, many of the lots originally held working buildings such as uh, a potter's kiln or a blacksmith's forge or a carpentry shop, uh, stables. But between roughly the 1770s and the 1820s, most of the houses on the street were built were, that are now standing, uh, some of them replacing earlier houses. So Robin Sue's house was built in, I think, 1797. Wow. All right. So I'm having a hard time. I I do want to find out a lot about Sue and Rob's house, but I'm so curious. I'm not catching on to this idea that you can build a whole residential street in an alley that's 15 foot wide. Can you clear sure. that up? So, so essentially what happened with Philadelphia was that the the blocks were laid out in these, these massive blocks with huge wide thoroughfares, all out of this sort of attempt to build a, a perfect city and a fireproof city. But the reality was that People wanted to be close to where sort of the, the business action was happening, which was uh, within a few square blocks of uh, one intersection, basically, right along the docks. And so people crowded into these spaces. And the, the alley really started as like a utility road, a pathway that you might use for somebody pushing a cart uh, or, or, or carrying a wheelbarrow or something. But with the addition of the second sort of bit of it that that extended to 15 feet. Uh, It became mostly a pedestrian way. Today, cars can drive down it. Uh, The city of Philadelphia has a few very narrow trash trucks, uh, one of which visits the street every week. But, you know, basically, there's houses very close to each other across the street. And, you know, I heard somebody quip the other day, as they walked past the alley, oh, this is the widest street in Philadelphia because Philadelphia is <laughs> is a city of, of narrow streets. We're lucky here that we have uh, bollards lining the street so nobody park can park on the sidewalk, uh, which is sort of the fashion in other parts of the city. Yeah, and and, and it became residential largely because this this was a a little it filled a niche. It was a space that was close to the docks uh, and close to places where work was available. But the lots that were developed along the street were small enough uh, and the houses that were built on them were small enough that they were relatively affordable to working class people. On the alley itself was, was very working class from its sort of earliest times. That's interesting. All right, so let's talk about the preservation history of the street because I'm sure for a long time people just lived there. Uh, when did it become both a residential street and a historic district as such with protected status? So uh, that story could probably begin a, a bunch of different ways uh, or places and times. But the, the the simplest sort of origin story is that in 1933, uh, a woman named Dolly Adi, who had moved to the street to run a little sandwich shop um, out of one of the houses, wrote a letter to the newspaper. She had learned that two three of the houses on the street were owned by a neighboring paint company and factories were sort of crowding in on the street. This neighborhood became very, very industrial in the 19th century. And she was worried that they were going to be knocked down. From her perspective, she was a business owner who saw this as a, the street as an opportunity and probably the historic nature, the the older homes as part of that brand. Um, But also she didn't want a factory moving in right across the street. So she wrote this letter to to the newspaper and said, this is a problem. These are some of the oldest houses that I've ever seen. Uh, What do I do about it? And people very quickly put her in uh, contact with a different group of preservationists uh, led by a woman named Frances Wister, uh, who came from a very old, uh, wealthy family who had two years earlier started an organization called the Philadelphia Society for the Preservation of Landmarks. 
And everybody who responded to Daliati said, you got to get in contact with Francis Wister. They met up and sort of over the next decade and a half, two decades, um, those two organizations sort of worked in the same space along the alley. So Daliati created the Alfred Sally Association, which is what now runs the museum. And that association was really a neighborhood organization to begin with. They were interested in having uh, events, having parties, bringing people to the alley. The Society for the Preservation of Landmarks, as far as I sort of understand that the division of these two organizations' duties, was more interested in making sure that the houses didn't come down. So they were doing things like investigating, purchasing houses that were condemned. And so they, they actually bought a few of them. Eventually, the association did so as well. And by sort of the mid-century, the association had, I believe, three properties at that point. And the Society for Preservation of Landmarks had something like another three properties, perhaps. Okay. And the the... the idea was they would buy these properties, they would shore them up so that they weren't, were no longer condemned. They, they hoped that they could raise money to maybe um, restore them in some fashion, but primarily they would rent them out as sort of uh, income producing uh, properties. And so that's sort of where you get to the, the 1950s. Um, but in the 1950s, the two houses that are now our museum, one of them was again condemned for the second time. So the Society for Preservation of Landmarks had bought it and, and fixed it up a little bit, but it was being condemned again. At the same time, the Alfred Sally Association was thinking about what was the next step of their, their mission? How could they sort of expand what they were doing. They were doing a lot of having volunteers in colonial dress uh, would sort of hang out in one of the houses and tell people about the street if they came in, but that house was one of their rental properties. So they wanted a, a, a dedicated space. They wanted a museum. And so I don't know who, who generated the idea, but the Society for the Preservation of Landmarks handed off control of one of the houses that they owned that had been condemned to the association with the expectation and in the contract, I think it actually said that they were to restore it and turn it into a museum within five years or something. Okay, great. Well, I want to ask Rob and Sue Cattell, I have a question for you. So Modern Alfrist Alley is described as a thriving residential community, and you two are actively thriving within it, I suppose. <laughs> and I want to know how and when you decided to make your home there. You want to start, Rob? Sue and I um, moved here from uh, Southern California. I knew nothing about the city of Philadelphia. I knew very little about historic preservation. We were looking for a place to rent for two years while I was going to school at Penn. Um, so we needed some place where I could easily get to, to the school. And uh, Sue had a job lined up in Morristown, New Jersey. So we needed she needed to get across the Ben Franklin Bridge to uh, New Jersey. And this happened to be a good location. So it had nothing to do with, with um, history or houses. It, it was strictly <laughs> a locational decision for us. It's the same real estate uh, issue everywhere, right? Location, location, location. Exactly. <laughs> but also, if I might add, it's just uh, we looked around and many places we had really no money. <laughs> so we were very careful to get a place that wasn't expensive. So we looked at a lot of alleys other than this one because we didn't know about it. And we had sleeping bags and we slept on floors in places that you wouldn't believe. So someone finally said, uh, you know, there's an alley, this alley. And we thought, okay, we'll look at one more alley. And that's how we came to Alfred's Alley. The house was in very bad shape. And we just started to fix it up, even though we rented it. Um, for only two years, we ended up here at 45. 
And we had a wonderful uh, person that had been willed the house and we had started to fix it up even though it wasn't ours. So she she did not raise our rent and she knew we were doing a lot. And so we were able to stay here and she wanted to give the house to someone who uh, loved it, even though she decided not to live here because of the spiral staircases when she retired. So we, after 12 years of renting, she said, please go find some money so you can, I want you to have the house. So it, it worked out really great. So 45 years we're, <laughs> we've been here. How did, how did two years become 45? Did you just fall in love with the house or did your uh, job plans change or everything? We fell in love with the city, I, I think, and, and the house. Um, after I uh, graduated, uh, I was looking for jobs in the immediate area and uh, found one and we stayed. That's so interesting. And you raised two girls there, you said? Uh-huh. You know, two girls who are now in their 30s. And uh, they became very city girls on subways going to high school. They went to a public high school here. And, and we just got really into it. I mean, uh, we love the city. We like the diversity of people. And, and we love this house. And it's creaky and, you know, has different <laughs> wonderful personality to it. it Probably would not be for some people, but we we just love it. And of course, I don't know. We just we just do love it. And then of course, being on the alley with all the history has been wonderful. What kind of work did you have to do on the house to live to move into it? Or well, you lived in it. What kind of to make it a more livable house for you is what I meant to say. Well, after we purchased it, after we rented it for for twelve years, we had to do a lot. We did work on the plumbing, electricity, put a new roof on. The first twelve years, it was all cosmetic stuff because we didn't own it. So we, over that 12 years, we had probably ended up painting all, all the rooms and making them livable. And then once we got it, we had to do real work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you got stuck with everything else, right? Is it still actively falling down like most of our old houses? <laughs> we just finished, I think, the last of our major roof leaks last year. Oh, good for you. So you have a little reprieve right now. Yeah. <laughs> Ted, you also live on the street, is that correct? In the alley, I mean. I do not. Uh, I, I commute uh, from West Philadelphia, but right now I am in in the the third floor of the museum, um, which is 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 my office. It's it's six feet one inch tall, uh, and I know that because I'm six feet tall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what is it like for someone who wants to buy a house in Elfrith's Alley now, assuming they ever go on the market? It sounds like a lovely place to live. Maybe nobody's leaving. So about. Uh, one property, two properties go on the market or are available to rent each year. Uh, we actually had a few sort of turnover this this last year and a half or so. Uh, the ones that have sold recently have been on the smaller side. So one of the things that's interesting about the the houses on on the street are they they, are, they were all built in this pretty narrow uh, window of time when you look at it from a, a long distance. Um, they're built between the 1720s and the 1830s. That period of time was also a period of, of huge architectural difference and, and changing styles. And so these houses are relatively different uh, sizes <laughs> from each other. And, you know, folks like uh, Robin Sue have lived in these houses for a long time. Many people have expanded the houses. So they range from, you know, I think the smallest is probably about one of our museum houses is about 1,200 square feet. There's a few that are sort of in the 1,000 square feet, 900 square feet uh, sort of range. There's others that are, I think the biggest one is maybe even 2,000 square feet. So there's a big range. The ones that have sold recently have been on the smaller side. And people often walk down the street and think, these must be such 
expensive houses. And 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 they are uh, because this this neighborhood is is relatively expensive to live in. Uh, but they're not you know more expensive than a house one one street over. And in fact, in some cases, they may be cheaper because they're. Uh, smaller and older and 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 lack some of the amenities of the nearby uh, condos or apartments and those kinds of things. What does it mean to be a resident in Alfresal? You're just living and other people are coming to take a peek. Actually, if you don't like people, you're probably on the wrong street. But <laughs> I, I mean, we love it and look at it as, you know, when we first moved here, I mean, there weren't a lot of people in this area. There were um, a, a lot of restaurant supply places, big, you know, that do wholesale and loved it. I mean, it was great to have the, the kids. <laughs> I know it was just neat to have them. We go to Independence Park as our playground. So they <laughs> go roll around the hills and stuff. But the, the neat thing was it that people can misconstrue is that everybody lives on the alley is wealthy. It's not true as, as Ted sort of alluded to it. There might be a couple of houses that there are people with a lot of money, but basically it's, it's um, a place where you have to love it too, because there's things that are uneven, things that squeak, and it wouldn't be for everybody. But the other thing is that living here, when people come down the street of the, of, at the end of the alley and they turn the corner and they see this alley, it's kind of like, oh. And I've talked to I like I talked to a lot of the tourists. I really love it. They come from all over the world and stuff. And they'll say, wow, this is actually one of our favorite places to come when we visit because it's so real. You don't have signs up that have all the years on everything, and they don't have. It's not a big sign. It goes El for Sally, like neon sign at the end of the street or something. It's just a street. And the neat thing is it is a living museum in itself. Is that it's not, it doesn't close down at four o'clock, except for where, where Ted is, which is wonderful that we have those two, those two houses that are made into the museum. So it's it's so real and they love it. And it hasn't been like, let's put up a fake street that looks like 1700s. It's This is right. it. It's been here. So... That's the beauty for me, at least, of living here. We love it. We're very, actually, we're also very grateful. I have a nine-room house in Center City, Philadelphia, at this point, because right. all around us, the developers are coming forth, and the price of things has just gone so up. I don't know how people afford it, really, but we're still here. Rob, you might want to add to that. It, uh, it's it's fun in some way. Whenever you open the door, there's usually somebody out there on on the street. So um, it's, uh, it provides a sense of uh, security, and, and there's always somebody to uh, talk to. So it has a a, a social uh, environment where if if you're not into that, like Sue said, you're on the wrong street. <laughs> I'm into that. So it sounds like a place I'd really like to be for sure. Come, come in, <laughs> coffee, tea, whatever, glass of wine. <laughs> Yeah, uh, any and all of those things. I would love to come and visit for sure. So, uh, Ted, I'm going to come back to you because I have a question about it. Um, we do, on this show, we talk a lot about high-style houses just because we are only 52 episodes in. That seems to be what comes around fairly often. And they also seem pretty straightforward to research because the occupants and architects that built them really love to talk about themselves. <laughs> And they were creating a legacy. So I'm very curious how it is to research an area like Alfred's Alley, which were sometimes people who lived in those types of houses didn't leave much behind. Yeah, we have sort of a, a range of people who we can sort of talk about um, in the alley's history because the the very early movers and shakers were people who were uh, landowners who were the houses that were being built on the alley at the very beginning were 
for their kids or their grandkids. And they were sort of like family compounds almost. And so those folks left a relatively strong trail, not necessarily in terms of uh, publications or letters or those kinds of things, but a rich history of deeds and wills and, and sometimes you know letters and, the, and, and newspaper ads and those sorts of things. But for the vast majority of people who have lived over the, on the street over the last 300 years, you know, thousands at this point, very many of them, the only things that I can find out about them are where they come in contact with sort of uh, state apparatus <laughs> or, or, or sort of more formal situations. So for instance, the, the census is a really great resource for us because the census is recorded or at least has been recorded pretty much geographically. People are listed next to their neighbors. Um, if you can find one person who lived on the street, you can just look up and down the census list and, and, and find more people who are living on the street. The other thing that we have in Philadelphia that's a really great resource is that Many of the, the city directories, the equivalent of phone book or, you know, uh, LinkedIn <laughs> in right. a way. Um, <laughs> Old-timey LinkedIn. Exactly. Um, were, have mostly been digitized from about 1785 to the 1860s. Uh, and there's a few outliers in the late 19th century and early 20th century that are sort of similar resources. And because those are digitized, it's a lot easier to pretty quickly find someone if you if you if you have a name or you have an address you can pretty quickly sort of at least get some idea of who is living there the challenge with both that and the census is that fr- primarily those are recording heads of household rather than who else is in the household 20th century censuses uh show you know have an entry for each person in the household but especially early history we know who was paying taxes, maybe. We, we know who had the, the most prominent job. In one case, I was looking at a, at a record for somebody and I they were listed on the census, but I believe they, they had died. But because uh, their widow was still using their name as the as the head of the household for the census record. So th- there's this sort of erasure of, of people who, who weren't the heads of households uh, on the street, which is a challenge. Yeah, that is interesting. Hmm. Rob and Sue, have, in all the work that you've done in the house or, or looking towards your future, have you left any sort of time capsules in the walls or anything that lets people know that you were there and you made your mark on that house for over probably 50, 60 years? Yes. Yeah. Um, in in the, the basement, when they rerouted the, the furnace flue from the chimney to, to the closets on, on the, the side, there were several major holes in the bricks, and we left a little time capsule uh, in there. When we redid the, the, the kitchen, before they mounted the cabinets, we wrote on the wall um, say, oh, saying uh, who, who was living here and, and dated it. Oh, that's neat. How long ago was the writing on the wall in the time capsule about? Just approximately. The, the, we did the kitchen in the 1995. Uh, the time capsule was done in 1984. Ooh, that's going to be a good one. <laughs> that 1984 time capsule is right up my alley. I'd like to see what's inside that. <laughs> we, we put a um, hard disk in, in there because the floppy <laughs> disks were on the way out at the, at the time. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking with a friend, I was talking about with a friend about putting time capsule in from this previous year, which has been crazy. And I was noticing that a lot of the advertisements had people wearing masks. And I thought, ooh, that would be a really good thing to put in a time capsule, these paper advertisements with people wearing masks. Because of course, no, none of us will ever forget the pandemic year of our lifetime. But 
it'll fade. That memory will fade. We'll eventually start thinking about other things, I'm sure. Our, one of the things that was so interesting is we really, there are, the, the walls are the good old plaster, you know, with the horse hair and all that. And most of them, some of them have been repaired in other ways. And there are places where you can see where there were chair rails. And some people have moved into these houses and they smoothed everything down. And what we have done is left, left it. So you can see where the chair rails were. It's bumpy. Our ceilings have bumps and we just painted it and we repaired. And also our floors, we finally got, uh, all of our floors have been redone. And at first we weren't sure that they would work because they were a gray dried out. Our house really had not, and in a way it was really kind of neat because it was left. So we decided let's try it. And this guy came in and he did a phenomenal job of, of redoing our floors and there there are New Jersey red pine, which I think is extinct at this point. And even in the and where they put the bathroom in, if you sat if you sat on the toilet, you had to you had a hole. I mean, not in the just the toilet, but on the floor. Um, and when our children were washing their hair, you know, the teenagers, I know we decided to maybe just this little tiny bathroom tiled it. And we took that floor and repaired other holes that were in, in uh, the house. So the floors really came out great and they're all they've all been brought up and look really neat. And I'm glad we just didn't want to, because other people had suggested, why don't you just put an oak floor over this? It's like, no. And our fireplaces yeah. were all, um, they had a heating flue through them. So that was, the first thing we did was get a roof that didn't leak and we and open the fireplaces. So we have three that are working now in the house. And we rerouted, as Rob pointed out, through the candle closet, this um, the heating deal. So we could open our fireplaces. But it was phenomenal. I mean, that we have this these three fireplaces that that work, and we used to read stories to our kids in front of their fireplace before they went to bed. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's a nice memory. Yeah, uh, fireplaces are so neat, and, and so many of them are rendered useless after a certain amount of time. So that's wonderful. I'm glad you were able to bring those back to life. I'm sure they're a beautiful part of the house. I want to pause for just a couple of minutes to tell you that. True Tales from Old Houses is supported by Echo Strip, the exclusive U.S. distributor of speed heater infrared paint removal products from Sweden. Used properly, the Speed Heater 1100 and the Cobra infrared paint removers reduce dust from paint scraping and don't release toxic lead fumes into the air. The weather's warming up and that always puts me in the mood to restore windows. And the Cobra is perfect for removing paint and softening old glazing putty. One of the neat things about the speed heater is that it heats the paint and putty from the inside out and only where you point it. It's so remarkable to me. It doesn't break the glass. And I find that my Cobra really is the best tool for releasing paint from intricate details and Munton profiles. The Cobra makes that work so much easier. So to find out more, visit Echo Strip, that's echo-strip.com. Order now and get $20 off your entire order when you use the coupon code TRUETALES1. Squish that all together. The word TRUE, then TALES, then the number one. That's $20 off your speed heater order with TRUETALES1. True Tales from Old Houses is also supported by The Window Course. I don't think I've made it clear enough just how lucky we are that Scott Seidler from the Craftsman blog created this DIY window restoration course for all of us. All of those tutorials you search for on YouTube and in books and on websites, you don't have to do that anymore. The Window Course is a step-by-step -step program that teaches you everything you need to know to successfully restore your historic wood windows all in one place, right where you need it. 
It's self-paced and you can go as fast or as slow as you need to. And there are also several price points to fit your needs and budget. You can buy it for yourself or you could buy it as a training tool for the person that you hire to restore your windows. That would be an excellent use of the program. The window course is offered with a 100% money back guarantee. And lucky for us, Scott is offering True Tales from Old Houses listeners a special discount. For 10% off, visit thewindowcourse.com and use the coupon code TRUETALES. Check it out, thewindowcourse.com, and the coupon code is TRUETALES. So, Ted, from the viewpoint of the director of the museum, how would you suggest that tourists make the most of their time during a visit to Alfred's Alley? That's a really great question, and it's one that I think about a whole lot. The street is only one block long. Um, it's very easy for people to sort of come, walk about halfway down, look around, say, okay, check that off my list. And so one of the things that we've been trying to do is is find ways that, as, as Sue said, you know, don't get in the way of the houses that are there. We don't want to put interpretive panels on everybody's front window, but, but ways to sort of draw people in, um, but also extend their visit. So one of the things that we... Uh, did in the last year is I wrote a short audio guide that people can listen to on their phone, which just, it's 20 minutes long. It it probably doesn't actually extend their stay, but it it tells people a little bit about some of the houses without having to read it. The other thing that we we did was we we sort of uh, threw together a podcast last year as sort of a result of of pandemic planning and, and, uh, plan being. Um, and the hope for that is really that that is something that people who visit the street can either listen to before their visit or after their visit, but it gives them stories beyond what they see and, and what they might be able to see. I mean, our museum, when we're open, it is also quite small. And, and we would love to sit and, and talk with people about the history of this place, but often people have other places to go. So they might duck into the museum and then they're out. <laughs> and so finding ways to try to keep them uh, coming back for more stories or answering questions that they might have from their, from their brief visit is, is uh, something that I, I hope to get better at, <laughs> um, really. Uh, one of the things that I, I think people shouldn't miss um, while they're here is that there is a little, um, you know, this alley was cut into a block to give access to the middle of the block. And for much of this alley's history, there were all sorts of other alleys cut into going off in various different directions on this street. Uh, And there's still one. It's called Bladen's Court, and it sort of leads into a back little courtyard. And there are people who walk halfway down the street and never never know that that exists. And I think that's one of the coolest little sort of somewhat hidden uh, spots on the alley. I was going to mention your podcast at the end, but since you've already alluded to it, then I'll just jump right in and say it's called The Alley Cast. And I listened to some episodes and I really enjoyed them. So great well, work, thank you. Ted. Um, your visitors can uh, schedule their tours here. Twice a year, we have open houses where they can uh, go through the private uh, houses. The first Saturday in June is a uh, summer afternoon open house. And then in the, the, the winter, the first Saturday in December, we have an evening uh, open house with uh, fire in the fireplace and mold cider. Oh, that sounds beautiful. We have about 20 houses that are open. And it's phenomenal. We had, how many thousand did we have one, one year, Ted? Uh, so before my time, I, I think that there were, there were many, many thousands. Uh, <laughs> in, in 2019, we had a very good turnout. And I think we had maybe just 
I'm trying to remember. My head is is not great with numbers, but you know, in the in the eighties, I think it was it was thousands and thousands, <laughs> at least one deck. Those are great opportunities because you know some people just open their front doors, but many of the houses let people walk through the first floor, and so you know as as with many of the people you talk to for your podcast, uh, you get to see what contemporary 21st century life looks like in you know 18th and 19th century homes. Uh, sure, people have really different taste. <laughs> uh, you know, I, some people have very historical sensibilities. Some people have more sort of artistic sensibilities. There's lots of variety on the street. I'm so torn between coming on one of those days with thousands of people and seeing beautiful mm-hmm. fireplaces in December and then otherwise just emailing yeah. Robin Sue and saying, hey, can I come visit you? Well, whichever time you come, you you'll get a great tour from Robin Sue. <laughs> Do both. Uh, it, it really is so phenomenal because there's so many people that come to this and they'll say, I remember my grandma t- brought me here when I was a kid. I mean, it, it's so neat to talk to people who have come back because they were here when they were kids. And we charge, I think, a very wonderful fee of like $25. And you can go through at least 20 houses. And what Ted just alluded to is the neat thing is people can use the decor that they have. And interesting stuff. Don't have to have all colonial motif. And yet the outside is, is, you know, what what it's supposed to be. But it is so fascinating. And so if you get here, it's the first First Saturday in December, and if people celebrate Christmas, they've got their tree up and all. If they don't, you know, they have their own thing. And then in June, it's a whole different feel. I can't express to you that that is a neat thing if you can get to that. But we would love to have you any other time. Well, I'm, I've already got the wheels turning in my head. I'm thinking about this. I don't live too far away, so <laughs> I could figure that out. But before we say goodbye today, I have a question for for both of you and Ted, or all of you, I suppose. Ted, first, I would you tell people where they can find the Alleycast? I'm going to link to everything in the show notes. So we're going to talk about it here, but there are show notes on the True Tales from Old Houses website, and anybody can find everything there as well, but go sure. for it. So you, you can find uh, the Alleycast on on whatever sort of podcaster you use, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. On our website at elfersally.org, we also have each episode, we have a transcript and a list of sources for it. So if, if that is something that is useful to you, um, that's probably the best place to go for that. Okay, great. And for Rob and Sue, I'm curious, since you've lived there for such a long time, do you have maybe a funny story about living there or something odd that happened that just sticks out in your mind? Uh, well, one is that, you know, our kitchen was very uh, minimal and we, because we're kind of people that can make do. So we were making do and, <laughs> and this the stove that we had at that time, it was, it was very old, but you didn't know how hot it was or how what was going. You just kind of put your hand in there. Oh, yeah, I think it's up to 350, you know. And we, we just managed. And then one day, the oven door fell off in my hand. <laughs> and I said, I think it's time we maybe do something with this kitchen. And that's kind of how we've done most of the house with, was through need. And that's why I think a lot of the, the stories come from is doing it through need. Like there's a hole in the floor. I'm stepping through it. Maybe we need to fix them. <laughs> Isn't it funny how we can look at things for a long time that are broken or need to be addressed and you just slowly work your life around them until usually it happens to me. I have somebody come over and I think, oh, my goodness, that they probably saw that hole that's been there that I've forgotten about over the last (laughs) seven years. (laughs) One of the things that uh, we sort of find interesting is that they they put an addition on on the back of the the house um, before they had running water. 
And then when running water and sewer came in, they turned the back bedroom into a bathroom. So we have the largest bathroom <laughs> any place I've ever been. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. What's your favorite part about living there? Uh, I think it's still the reason we came here. It's location, location, location. It, it's We're right in center city of Philadelphia. You know, within walking uh, distance, you can get all the espresso. You know, you want the theaters, the post office, and the delis and, and everything. Um, there are a lot of the people on the, the alley don't have cars. They don't need them. And with the public transportation and walking distance, it's it's a great place to live. Yeah, yeah and I think we, we really like the diversity. I taught in the public school before I retired, and our kids went to public school. That's, that's one of the things we love. And as Rob said, we... Our kids were not like mommy's going to take you. It's like okay, subway, bus, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you know, it, it, they became more independent quickly. But history and Rob knows so much of the history around here. Probably like Ted. I mean, he gave a wonderful tour of the whole area. And I, I think we just love the diversity, and and we do like people. I I love uh, before the the pandemic came. I used to say, oh yeah, want to come in and anytime say and have, show people the first floor. I don't because. I, the epidemic, but I will sometimes take them to the side outside our house. See, in between most houses, there is another alley. So you come in this little alley and you go to your house and the other person goes to their house, which is why our open houses work because there's always a flow. You don't have to be stuck. And so I will take people in just yesterday. I did, I brought some people in and they came in, they could look through our windows and see in, but I'm more careful still in all masks and stuff. So I think we just love people and diversity and, and, and we like the city what's involved here. All right. Well, thank you for being here, Ted and Rob and Sue. It's just been a pleasure talking to all of you today. I've, I've loved every second of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Look forward to seeing you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. To continue the conversation, follow True Tales from Old Houses and Blake Hill House on Facebook and Instagram. And for more information about this episode, including all of the merchandise run info, show notes, transcripts, and to sign up for the monthly newsletter, visit truetalesfromoldhouses.com. Until next time.